I'm used to, there is one right way. <laughs> and you either doing it the one right way or you are not doing it the one right way. And, oh, Eric, we've got some work to do. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, there's a couch over here and I'm going to lay down on the couch okay. and we'll finish, Go ahead. The, finish the interview with me over there, okay? That's right. We'll This is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people in that spiritual conversations to help them find hope in life. I'm your host, Eric Elkin, a pastor who felt like he needed to spend more time listening. So I created a podcast where ordinary people would decide the direction of the conversation, and I would just listen. So this show is about people's questions, struggles, and opinions that don't always reflect my own views. You'll probably hear something you disagree with, or may even make you angry. I just want you to listen like a good camp counselor. Good camp counselors allow children to express themselves without judgment. They listen for what the camper is trying to say. People who listen tend to understand each other better, and we live in a world desperate for ears. So let's begin today's show. You really need counseling. One of the byproducts of working with at-risk youth is you spend a lot of time working with mental health professionals, both assessing the needs of the children and trying to figure out why you're working with at-risk children. I would like to tell you I'm joking. My first year of marriage, I spent six days a week living with three high school youth who were part of an alternative school run by the camp I served. I did this for room, board, and $50 a week. It was the final confirmation for my wife's parents Their daughter did not marry Bill Gates. I learned a lot from those experiences and found counseling life-giving. Yet despite this, the words, you really need counseling, sounds ominous and threatening. Why is that? Why are we ashamed to admit we need it or that it helps? About a month ago, a friend who is a psychotherapist posted an article on Facebook. The article was from another therapist who talked about how much he loved his job. I'd never heard a therapist talk with so much enthusiasm. So I reached out to Margie, my friend who posted the article, to talk about it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Let's listen to Margie describe her job. professionals, um, educated, um, and I think there's this, um, this idea of, well, I, I should know how to handle this stuff, and I, mm-hmm. I, I know better than this, again, as if some emotion is some sort of a negative thing, and mm-hmm. trying to reason themselves out of their grief or their feelings, and they'll say, well, but there's this one thing, there's just this one thing, and it happened 30 or 40 years ago, but I just, and I, I it's over, mm-hmm. I'm fine, I'm productive, but I just can't, I don't understand why I can't just, it just keeps coming up, especially as people get older. 
Right. Almost like they soften a lot of times, and it sort of allows some of that to come back. Do you think? Do you think sometimes when we're younger that we have this over? I mean, it's nice that we have an optimistic view of the world because that would be kind of like loving that, your that job. Very helpful, I think. Yeah. But something about that is almost overly optimistic that we think yep. we can work through this and, and we'll just get better. Yeah. And and we don't. <laughs> no, because no matter how the human emotional process is, it's universal. It's the same. You can't think your way out of it. You have to allow yourself to experience it. Right. Grief, pain, just like joy, right. all of it. Culture puts a lot of pressure on people to just suck it up and figure it out. But we all have some event in our life that caused us some form of stress. We can bury it for a while, but eventually our feelings about it finds a place to go. Most often that place is displaced anger. The culture... Um, mm-hmm. There might be places where it's better and worse, but just an overt expressing of emotions kind of gets us tense. Well, and you know, in, in, in American culture, and I don't know, it's this anger and I'm mad and I'm pissed off. That That's what we do. Mm-hmm. We just, all the big intense emotions go into anger oftentimes. I'm just mad. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I work with people with anger management problems, we do the, okay, you've got the angry. We, you've got that down. Let's, let's do some of the other ones. What's underneath the anger? They're like, well, what do you mean? And there's like, well, I'm happy or mad. That's it. No, that's not it. Let's, let's get some emotional vocabulary here. Right. But I think we don't, we don't allow ourselves times to just time to really just be and reflect we're just like chasing one thing after another. And so to really, how many of us really sit down and think about our full emotional process naturally? But most of us as Americans don't, we're just busy. After 30 years of working with parents at, at camp or in church or whatever, the, our I just noticed our first reaction all the time is anger. And if you could address that anger, you get down to a rational conversation. Well, and and if you can get to what's underneath the anger, right? Often right. it's what? Fear, right? Right. A lot. Also, it's just, it's a huge defense mechanism to to deflect all kinds of other things that, may, that we probably don't really understand internally what's happening and our level of self-awareness at that moment and sometimes in general. When you um, say defense mechanism, what do you mean by that? You think about animals' defense me- mechanisms. What are what are they for? To protect, right? Mm-hmm. And so people who experience trauma, for example, and especially as children, they develop defense mechanisms because they need them, especially if there's ongoing risk for true trauma. Um, they need those defense mechanisms, and they they protect them. They keep them safe. They like um, ward off the enemy, right? So mm-hmm. to speak. Um, and anger does that too. It it causes people to step back, and it gives distance. Mm-hmm. 
This is taking place on a national scale right now. We're all using anger as a defense mechanism. The issues we are dealing with are so overwhelming we can't cope with them. So we get angry, we blame, we strike out. Liberals at conservatives, Republicans at Democrats. Anger shuts down the conversation, but it never solves the problem. We do this when we can't find the energy or are afraid of having to change. Sometimes you just gotta name it, look at it, and then decide where to go from there. And one of the things that I work, no matter what the identified problem is when somebody walks in the door, um, we're taught to assess their support system. And when I was younger, that was an academic exercise and I didn't really fully understand. It was just something you were supposed to do. I don't think I did as well on that when I was younger, but as, as I, the longer I practice, the longer that I see, um, you know, I will, a couple of my initial treatment goals with people are to decrease stress where mm-hmm. we can, and a certain amount of stressors are just natural in life, but really even more importantly is increase support. And I can't tell you how um, difficult that is with a lot of people to get them even to consider reaching out for additional support. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very, very difficult for a lot of my clients. And I think for most of us, we don't want to reach out and accept help and show our vulnerability and, and then our intellect. Like I, I know how to do, I know how to deal with this. Well, it's not an, in, support has nothing to do with intellect. for a support system is becoming a repeated theme on the show. Julia discussed it at some length in my interview about birth. Both Margie and Julia's talking about support reveals something we don't want to see in our culture. We're lonely, we feel isolated, and we feel like no one cares. Where do you find support? you that question of what does it mean to be fully alive showing up in life and and figuring out and giving ourselves permission to be who we were made to be and a lot of people you know a lot of us are like well i don't know Mm -hmm. um and we don't always love who we are so that that's a whole nother that's something i work with people a lot but i love this question because it means to show up in a big way with who we are and not apologize, uh, apologize to the world or anyone about who we are and just be us. Right. Which is, that's a tall order. It's hard. <laughs> well, you know that, it, yeah, it, that draws me into really one of the reasons I wanted to reach out too was why don't we like who we are? Well, I think there's, I think that there's this big, so this plays into a lot of our shame talk that we have a lot about what we're supposed to do and what we should do and what someone or society or whoever says what we should do. There's a lot of shoulds and anytime people are using a lot of should, that's shame, 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 shame. That's a person not honoring who they are or allowing themselves to really explore that. I asked Margie a question, and she went in a completely different direction. 
she went into an area we never really discuss. A therapist's personal challenge is about providing good therapy. I found this part of the conversation really interesting, and I hope you do too. So as therapists, a lot of times we will pick up on clients with clients, things that we have personally struggled with or we're exploring with ourselves and sort of pull those pieces out with people. Um, Meaning you, the, the stuff that you're dealing with as a therapist, yeah. you start unexpectedly drawing at people that it's, have the same issues. Right. It's kind of like until you, you know, for some reason you go and buy a yellow car, then all of a sudden you're like, wow, there's a lot of yellow cars in the world, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so whatever... And which is why our own personal work and uh, as a therapist is so important because we will limit clients with sort of diving deep into who they are and what they are and their insecurities. You were talking about insecurities. I mean, we all have them, right? Mm -hmm. And some people will say they don't. Well, we do. Mm -hmm. Well, that's got to be a challenge then for you to not hear what you want to hear coming out of someone, uh-huh. is that? Yeah, and you know, that's where the constant and continuous openness to consultation and creating that type of community where you have that peace for yourself personally in, in friendships, relationships, but also in the professional community. Right. Such a huge important piece is to stay connected and receive feedback from peers because we can't see what we don't see in ourselves, right? We just can't. One of the other issues Margie and I talked about that is related to this but was not included in this show. Be very careful when someone tells you a therapist or a pastor told them something horrible. Yes, that can happen. But often people hear what they want to hear. So a therapist needs to be very careful in how they approach a person's challenges. As a pastor, I'm not trained in this field. My ability to listen and respond is limited. So please don't take it wrong if I tell you, you really need counseling. I'm just trying to help. What I find, and and I would think would be related is people are asking your opinion so much that it's easy to be seduced that you really have the answer uh yeah right yeah and really truly um some of the best therapy training i got was to really try to be open to the fundamental belief that that's that's just not true And our job is to, of course, give some skills and some perspective and some feedback. But the answers are so individual. And it is so important that it's believed and respected that, in my case, the client, it is is within them. Mm -hmm. It's their job to discover that. My job to help them open up and be vulnerable to be able to discover that for themselves and not be told... Whatever I tell clients in that regard, usually it just doesn't fit because it's not theirs. Right. It's my it's my experience, my reality, which is really not relevant to them. Mm-hmm. 
I want to take a minute and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, if you find it provides you a healthy challenge to grow, please consider sharing it with a friend. If you're looking for something to get you spiritually grounded, I send out daily reflections on life Monday through Friday. Over 1,100 people are reading those daily reflections. It confirms why I started this podcast. People are hungry for a spiritual conversation. If you're interested in receiving those, go to the website OrdinaryVoices.org, OrdinaryVoices.org, and subscribe to the email list. This is a listener-supported show, and I'm working to make it sustainable so it can continue. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Patreon button on the website. Thanks again for listening. Now, let's return to our conversation with Margie. I send out questions in advance so my guests are not surprised. But every once in a while, I cheat and drop a fresh question on them. My question to Margie? No biggie. In 30 words or less, just tell me all the world's problems. I thought she did really well on her pop quiz. What would you draw from what you know as a therapist to what you've seen taking place right now? Yikes. That things are ever-changing. The human experience is the human experience, but things are really different. And just the the issues that I see in my office, um, the tremendous increase in anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. And I was just reading an article recently about why do we see so much more ADHD? Are we just identifying it more, or there is there truly more disorders? particular article in research came back to um, environmental expectations educationally. You know, there's this big push for students to sit down and pay attention and learn in a specific way and teach to the test and all of those type of things. And, you know, for instance, trades are begging people to come and be in trades and do physical labor because it's really not, it's really discouraged. And you think about somebody who truly does have that different learning style and different just style of interaction and behavior. Mm -hmm. Now it's looked at negatively and we need to help people sit down and buckle down in the classroom where their brains are just not cut out in that way to behave and learn. And it's just, it's ego dystonic for them. It's like their skin is crawling. They just can't hardly stand it. So we medicate them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, which does help them. It does mostly not always. It's, it's not for everybody. So even just the intense focus for kids and young adults on education and just, um, really kind of, there is no other way other than this, you have to do this and you have to do that. Like, ugh, I don't know. When our children were infants, my wife showed me how much babies depend upon routine, consistency, and patterns. Literally, it brought them physical peace. I think of this whenever I work with children and families, but I think it goes beyond them. Change and the speed of change in this modern age the most significant factors producing stress in our culture. It affords us little time to adapt, to develop our own patterns and routines. 
Schools have become the point of convergence where family expectations meet the rapidly changing norms of the culture, and no one has figured out how to merge the two. So everyone is stressed. And clearly on the couch again with this one in a therapy session because um, I was a wildly hyperactive person and um, well and he, you know as a practitioner we're recommending those things to, to teachers and teachers are under so much pressure right mm-hmm. um, but when when a kid is hyperactive and having problems you know we'll say well let them get up and walk around the classroom let them take a little break but it's so hard because they have you know from a teacher's perspective if you have five hyperactive kids in your class, which wouldn't be uncommon, mm-hmm. most classes at least have that many, mm-hmm. and maybe not hyperactive, just active, then you're going to get let five kids go up and walk around, and the other kids are, I mean, it, I could see where it, you need some class or management, but for the five kids, what are they supposed to do with themselves? Right. Unfortunately, teen suicide has long been a problem. One of the areas of concern for mental health professionals is not only the number, but the age. It used to be teen suicide was a high school issue, but today we're seeing it in junior high and younger, and no one knows why. You started out with something that I think is important for people to hear. But we've tied it a lot to hyperactivity, and I don't think it's limited to that. And that is the the anxieties oh. that are prevalent in our young people. Yeah, the in this in the small community in which I work, the um, teenage suicide is a lot of. I don't think we have we don't have anything back from the Department of Mental Health yet to, uh, or the uh, public health to tell us, you know, what is technically an epidemic, but we in the mental health community, I've heard that word thrown around a lot, a suicide epidemic with our young people um, in our community. The kids are telling me over and over and over, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. And it it was interesting. Um, There was sort of a, a community outreach and some interviews done and um, a, a panel of young people were interviewed, and they, the interviewer said, "What, what is your biggest stressor?" All of them said school. I was surprised. I did not think they would say that. Really? I, I just, I don't know what I thought. I thought maybe they'd say peer relationships or social media, or and a lot of adults are saying, "Well, it's all social media." We don't really know, but. Um, I'm just really curious to figure out what this is and in the meantime offer these kids and families support and help them to externalize their experience. What's going on? Let's help you put words to what's happening inside. And a lot of them don't know. Like, I don't know. I just can't handle it. One of the things I noticed within our own family is the expectation you need to have everything figured out by the time you're 23. If you don't, somehow you're behind. You're losing some mythical race. Not even sure where any of this feeling comes from. So I asked Margie about it.
we married each other because we were both losers, so we're not really on the high end, high end of things. Don't we, say that in public. Well, <laughs> well, we were the only two. Yeah. We were the only two that would date each other, you know, so. Hey, you know, you do what you got to do. Yeah, we got lucky. But, and even as much as that was true, we we just had such, when I graduated from college, I was optimistic about everything. I don't know if if I had any fear about if I was doing it right. Well, you know, I... I see all the time, and I feel like we put so much pressure on our kids in general as a society. Um, you got to figure it out. You need to have goals. You need to. You need. 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 I remember graduating from college too, and I'm sure I felt a certain amount of stress. But my stress was like, okay, it's 1987. I have a college degree, and really, there's not jobs, and so I'm working for a minimum wage, and I have some loans to pay back. How are we going to do that like today? Mm-hmm. I didn't know about six months or a year or have any strategic plan for my career or my anything. Like just like I just got up every day and just like, well, what are we going to do today? Sort mm-hmm. of the, this big movement towards mindfulness now, which I think is incredible. Teaching people, let's just be in today. Mm-hmm. How can you get your stuff done? Yes, you have obligations and things to do. And then just just like be. Right. Let's just put those those worries or concerns or things that we can't control um, or predict. I tell a lot of high school kids now, especially freshmen. I have a freshman client who says he's got to he's got to figure his life out. Margie introduces us to a freshman in high school she is counseling. When she describes his issues, I can think of a hundred parents who would love their children to be thinking like this kid, but it is causing undue stress. She calls it developmentally inappropriate, and it is. Says he's got to he's got to figure his life out. He's got he's worried about paying for college. He's worried about what he's going to do for a living. And I have finally said to him and his parents, that is developmentally inappropriate. Your job is to dream about, and if the dream changes every week, all the better to dream about your future when you want to. Um, and then, and do your homework and just be a person. I mean, this kid is so, he is so stressed. I often wonder if the speed race towards knowledge began when we discovered children absorbed more information than we realized. Peggy and I once got chastised by our daughter's kindergarten teacher because she didn't read yet. He responded, we thought that was your job. So I asked Margie about this. If we discovered that kids' minds really can absorb so much at a younger age Ugh. that if we just started filling those buckets too much and forgetting that those kids needed to have, to figure out emotional stuff, figure out play stuff, to figure out dreams. And to, to just have emotional space, right? Just mm-hmm. true downtime. I say to my kids all the time, like, I 
there's so much they'll ask me, you know, I'm supposed to, I'm mom, I'm supposed to know everything for these four kids. And I can barely get myself where I need to go, where I need to, you know, I tell them my brain cannot carry all that information. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I can't do it. It's too stressful for my brain. And I don't, I don't think I'm alone in that. It is that all this information is an assault. Mm -hmm. on the brain and when does it so you think about the metaphor or the reality of weightlifting I was you know I was a college athlete I did some weightlifting mm -hmm. um, but I know some of the fundamentals are do you lift with the same muscle group every day no mm -hmm. why not because when you're lifting weights the muscles are being actually broken down right Mm -hmm. And they need a day, at least a day in between to build back up. That's when the muscle is really building is when you rest. Mm -hmm. So I use that metaphor all the time because I find it to be true, trying to get people, get people to, to give themselves time to rest their brains because that's when you can really discover um, and get clarity, mm -hmm. not only just to manage anxiety, right? Which that's important, but mm -hmm. um, clearly, but to just be able to have some clarity about your internal process, your spirituality, your relationships, mm -hmm. period, is we've got to give ourselves downtime. Yeah. I spent several years directing Christian camps. Over the years, my understanding of the importance of camp has changed. When I started, it was about faith. Camp was and continues to be the single most influential experience to help a child remain connected to their faith as an adult. Then I started realizing it's one of the few places where children get to experience a dynamic encounter with creation. How can we expect our children to save a planet they've never learned to love? Now I call camp the safest place on earth to fail. Every activity our children do, they are graded. School, sports, music. Unfortunately, this often includes the church. At camp, you can fail and they'll help you through it. Even own it. When children experience love at the other end of failure, they develop confidence, security, and hope. That's not only why kids love camp. It's why camp is one of the most critical places for healthy development of our children. daughters is she just wired to she just she's like a, this little adult and just is always thinking and her brain's going all the time and she's worried about this and that and then we sent her to camp and she went to camp of course she had to worry about that oh my goodness this girl the the growth I think she was when did that happen she was probably nine and she wanted to go back for a second week Oh a gosh. kid that could never even stay overnight at her grandparents' house. Right. And she just, incredible growth. Right, right. I, I'm like, I don't even know want to know what goes on out there. I don't need to know. Just keep doing whatever <laughs> just, it is you do. Just, just, just do that. <laughs> do that. And I'll send her back there. Just do that. Yeah. Uh, so that's yeah. interesting to hear yeah. from your well, perspective and what you see with kids. One of the things that people... I mean, obviously, I'm biased, so and I'm and I'm, I'll own that for the rest of my life. But <laughs> um, one of the things that was absolutely amazing is it's a place where you can make mistakes and not yeah. get 
not it's no big deal who cares you know you can act out and people are going to still like you you know you can you can you can you're going to break something and people are still going to like you you know you're going to get in a fight and an argument and you and the counselor and the staff are going to manage that and they're going to teach you how to reconcile your differences and work it out and and these are all like really good skills to have. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm like, hey, I do think I need to go to the camp yeah. myself. Yeah, well, this is not my lecture. It's uh, I'm off. No, no, I'm no. off the I'm off hey, the therapy couch now, though. <laughs> you know how good I am? Yeah. Ooh, wow. I feel so good. Right. <laughs> I don't know if we have a show here, but I feel good. <laughs> I have drawn you out. Eric. <laughs> you know, um, you know that kind of. Um, you said something because you're. Um, I know Brene Brown is huge right now. Yeah. And okay. and I and I hate to say it that way because I think what she's talking about is really really good stuff. It isn't. It uh, is. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. isn't coming up with a new flavor of ice cream. But um, <clears throat> um, you 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 had made a statement about that. The difference between, um, in that fear and shame thing is. It's I am bad and not that I did something bad. Right. I think that goes right along with what you were talking about with kids at camp and like um, really normalizing that we um, make mistakes and we aren't our mistakes. Mistakes are. And it's so it's so hard to live this, I think, especially in today's society where achieve, achieve, plan, 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 achieve goals, 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 plan. Um, but really not, just not having the labels of I am, I am bad. I did something bad. I'm not bad. Mm -hmm. You know, I think even, so again, with our adolescents back in the day, teenagers were known to do stupid stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was part of being a teenager. And you, then parents would hopefully not take it super personally and would go, well, you're just going to have to live with it. Mm -hmm. And then they would, you know, move on um, and still continue to love each other. And now there's got to be all these interventions when teenagers make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Got to go to this program and that program. Right. Um, and this, all this type of, um, it, it's like almost public right. now. Um, which really labels people as bad, right? I mean, we've always had that, like, you know, the, the, talk, the talk is this, this is a bad kid and that's a good kid or person. But really it is, um, that's all shame talk. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I would say that I see with that is we have this tendency to target those kids. But man... I find such anxiety among parents that their kids do any little tiny little thing wrong, you know? And so there's this shame that is yep. coming from within the family. It's not even outside the culture. Yep. Right? I mean, Absolutely. You, do you, you find bet. that? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, especially with all this performance pressure. Mm -hmm. Got to be this and do this and... Um, it's it's so hard because it, of course and I, I think this has just been gone on genera generation after generation we want better for our kids and ourselves right mm -hmm. so then does that disallow them their experience of making mistakes and learning and growing and learning how to negotiate and what's important to them 
sometimes there's tremendous pressure. Yeah. I like to end each show with a scripture verse to help listeners make a connection between life and faith, no matter what the life situation may be. This one was tricky. Mental health and faith is a partnership with a difficult past. As Margie and I talked about anxiety, the words of Jesus in Matthew came immediately to mind. Don't worry about your life. Yet I've never met anyone who's been able to stop worrying about anything, ever. People suffering from depression or anxiety disorder can't just stop it. Then I thought about Jesus calming the storm. Fits, right? Fear, anxiety, anger, grief can make us feel swamped. However, it lends itself too much to the pray your way through your difficulty or endure until the miracle hits, neither of which are really good advice. Finally, I settled on 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6-7. through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. At some point in the midst of life, we need to humble ourselves to the reality we can't do it all, nor were we created to do it all. God has placed us in a community and provided us a support system. Margie may not look like Jesus, but she can minister to your needs. She, like many therapists, can receive your burdens, see them for what they are, shine a light on them, and help you see them in a new light, so you might know the joy that God cares for you. If you're listening to this show and feel there is just that one thing you can't seem to shake, or that you may need to talk to someone, please find a therapist, because their greatest joy is helping you find greater joy in life. That's our show. I want to thank Margie for sharing and thank you for listening. Please join me next time when I continue my conversation with Margie. We ended up talking about confession, forgiveness, and healing. I thought it too rich a conversation to include in this show, but it is definitely worth listening to next time. Until then, please remember to help me invite more people into this conversation. Check out the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. OrdinaryVoices.org. Sign up for the daily devotions. And remember, this is a listener-supported show, so please consider supporting it so we can continue the conversation. On behalf of all Ordinary Voices, thanks for listening.